you wished upon a star. Now we want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Disneyland. Just go to Action Park, there's no other park like it. Six Flags Great Adventure. It's not a world away. Paramount's Kings Island. We will officially open Universal Studios Florida. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. Now, here is your host. Hi, Defunct Line guests. My name is Kevin Perger, and welcome to another edition of the Defunct Line podcast. This episode and the next two will be a little different than our normal podcast episodes because all three will feature the same guest, former Imagineer and veteran puppeteer Terry Harden. She's worked on many films and attractions, one being Captain EO, which we will discuss next week. On today's show, however, we will be discussing her time with the Muppets and Jim Henson, her Imagineering career, and even a special story of her with Michael Eisner. So I apologize for the change in format, but I'm sure you will see that it is very well worth it. And now on to our very special guest on today's show, former Disney Imagineer and veteran puppeteer Terry Harden. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for coming. This is a... Uh, the, a big get for the Defunct Land podcast. You have done many, uh, many things, and I want to get right into these questions. Um, there's going to be two parts to this interview. Um, you have done a, you've done a lot in your career, in case you're not aware. Um, <laughs> our, our first category is uh, just that. I have a few questions relating to some of the projects you've worked on, and the second qu- category is going to, of course, focus on, solely on Captain EO. Okay. My audience has asked a few questions, and I have some of my own. Um, so you're ready for the first category. I am. All right. Um, you've worked on films such as Men in Black, The Flintstones, and Ghostbusters. You have puppeteered famous characters such as the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and the Demon Dogs from Ghostbusters. Uh, you worked on attractions as, such as Big Thunder Mountain Railroad in Paris and Splash Mountain and Muppet Vision 3D in the United States. Um, all that is, you've done all that. Yes, that is correct. Good job. Thank you. I, I am good at stalking people on the internet. <laughs> and uh, let's talk about that last one uh, to begin with. I have a few questions. You m- knew Jim Henson personally. Yes. Tell me what it was like to get to know him and get to work with him. Well, first of all, my hero was Frank Gauze. I have to be completely transparent because Jim knows this up where he is. And um, I was impressed with, with Jim Henson and all that he had created and all he had done. But my hero was Frank Oz. I thought this man was an absolute genius. I I swooned every time he did a Fozzie Bear and Miss Piggy. I just thought he was amazing. And so I was um, flown into New York to do a McDonald's commercial involving Chicken McNuggets. <laughs> At the time, yes, this was 1982, so those of you who weren't born, let me just take you back. There were no computers. There were no smartphones. There was barely... VHS, not DVDs, et cetera, et cetera. I think that time was laser discs were the big thing. And uh, cassette tapes. But uh, uh, I was so excited because I was going to New York. It was my first time flying first class, and I was going there to perform a commercial for McDonald's involving chicken McNuggets that I had sculpted. They were little foam puppets that danced around, all practical, because we didn't have computer-generated stuff. Later on, they did computer-generated stuff with the real McNuggets, but we did the, the, the chicken McNuggets. I don't even know if you could find those commercials, but the way YouTube digs, you probably could. But I was brought in with two other puppeteers to do this commercial with a man that I hadn't seen in some times, Mr. Tony Urbano, an amazing puppeteer in his own right, one of the best in the world. And we, when last we had known each other, we got to an argument. 
because the one thing I get really upset about is if you decide to pick an altercation with me, which I welcome if you have something. I don't have a catalytic converter on my mouth. I'm always going to tell you the truth, my truth anyway. So if it offends you, I don't I, I expect that you'll come and talk to me about it, but we must do it in private, not in front of others, or I will rip you a new one. So Tony violated that in front of all of the coworkers, and I didn't like it. So I shot back at him and, uh, and left. And he, I, I don't know if he fired me or I quit, but it was kind of simultaneous. We were very hot. We were very angry. I do not like being yelled at or scolded in the presence of others. You take me privately and that way I am free to speak. So I left. Next thing I know about a year later, I get a call and I'm told I'm on a plane to do Chicken McNuggets commercials. So I was confused, but excited. So we did this and everything was going swimmingly. It was like nothing had ever happened between Tony and I. I was very excited. And then we wrapped for the day and Tony, we were all standing there, so it's four puppeteers and, and Tony the lead. And uh, Tony has done the Snuggles Bear. He did a lot of cruise ship stuff. He's he's magnificent. Just Google Tony Urbano. He's just a genius puppeteer from way back when. But uh, anyway, he, <laughs> he announces to the puppeteers, all four of us standing there, that he would like to go see opera. And I all of a sudden find myself alone. The other puppeteers obviously knew Tony and this passion, and they were gone. So he turns to me and he says, Terry, will you go with me? And I had never seen opera. And I said, Tony, I don't know. I've never seen opera. I don't know if I would enjoy it. And he said, please, it's at the Met. So he took us to get tickets, and the tickets were $80 a piece for a box seat, something that now probably runs $300 at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Now I'm all in, I'm in my twenties and, and it's going to be La Boheme. It's going to be in French. I'm about as excited as the, about doing this as watching wet paint dry. I really don't want to spend $80. I really don't want to go. And Tony is just so excited. So I turn and I say, what's in it for me? And he says, what do you mean? And I said, look, Tony, I, I, I this is going to be a lot of my money. You know, I'm in my twenties. And uh, I, I and it's in French. I, I I don't speak French. I just don't. Please, what are you gonna do if I go with you? Because I can see you really want to go. What do you want? I said I want to go see Ha, which was Jim Henson's studio. And Tony said, Okay, I'll take you to see Ha, but you're not gonna meet Jim Henson. And I said, look, I really don't want to meet Jim Henson. What I really want to do is go down into the department where they make Miss Piggy because I want to find out how do they make Miss Piggy because I was a puppet builder and I could not figure out how they made her because her she was not covered in fleece like Kermit. She had something else done and I couldn't figure it out back then. Tony says, okay. So the next day we make an appointment and we go over to Ha and we open the doors and it's so much, I can equate the experience like many of you who have been to Club 33. You walk through that door, a door you never thought you were going to go through and it takes your breath away and it has a beautiful spiral staircase with a balloon in the middle and you're circling it to go upstairs. And um, Jane Henson, Jim's wife was supposed to meet us, but coming across with his hand outstretched was Jim. Oh my. 
Jim automatically turns and sees me and walks directly to me and shakes my hand. Who are you? Now, the reason he did this was because women in puppetry were very few and far between. Out of 30 people, you could figure that maybe three of them would be women at the time. So anytime a lead puppeteer found a woman, they were excited. So he walks up and wants to know all about me. He knows that I'm with Tony. I must be very good. And he starts to question me. And Tony breaks us up and says, she's with me, hands off. And I go, no, I'm not. I haven't seen you in a year. What are you doing? What, are you, what, are, what is this possessive stuff? And Jim just smiles. So he, he takes me through and shows me that Miss Piggy and Bunsen Honeydew have been flocked. It's called flocked. It's an electromagnetic current and felt particles, and it uses electricity and glue to make the ends of the felt stand on end when you cover the foam sculpture with glue. It was amazing. Yeah. And I was just like gaga for it. So then Jim had to leave, and... And we went through a few other things, and then we excused ourselves. And as I was coming down the spiral staircase, a small door opened about three foot high that I had not noticed before, and something was shoved into my pocket. And then the door closed. Nobody saw it. I could tell it was not meant to be seen. So I exited it, and when I got to my hotel room, I opened it, and it was a message from Jim asking me to call um, his company when I got back home. And when I got back home... um, he invited me to come and shoot in New York, and I declined. What? That's right, folks. I said no. You're crazy. Thank you, but no. And he thought that. In fact, he got on the phone, and he said, this is Jim Henson. How do you say no to me? <laughs> and I said, Jim, I want to do the best I can for you, but I can't do it in Manhattan. I did not like Manhattan. It kept me on edge. I couldn't sleep. I wasn't comfortable. Any state that has methane coming from underneath the street because of the garbage that's collected. I can't live there. And um, he said, what makes you think that you can work for me and not live in Manhattan? And I said, well, Dave Gonzo lives up north in Northern California. That's not in Manhattan. Kevin (laughs) Clash, he lives in Baltimore. That's not in Manhattan. Steve Whitmire lives in Atlantic City. He goes, okay, okay, okay. I get your point. (laughs) He said, all right. But let me, he said, I'm not pleased. And he hung up. Oh, wow. So that was 82. In 89, Disney got together with Jim to make Muppet 3D Theater. And they purchased a portion of the Muppet franchise at that time, 89. And I get a call from Jim Henson. Hi, Terry, this is Jim Henson. I said, no, it's not. He goes, yes, it is. And I'm like, shut the front door, really? <laughs> and he did, a, he did a Kermit the Frog voice. I go, oh, my gosh, Jim, Hi. And he said, I'm coming to California to audition for Muppet 3D Theater. I expect you to audition. And believe me, if you're not good, I'm going to embarrass you. (laughs) So he said, I'm going to embarrass you. You're going to wish you weren't alive. Now, hold on. Hold on. Can I interrupt you just for a second? Yes. Um, Jim Henson's speaking voice uh, is very wistful and kind of almost whispery. I mean, very Mm -hmm. low pitched. So I'm trying to imagine Mm -hmm. him saying these things to you in this very... uh, this peace, peaceful, like smooth voice. Is, is that kind of how he's angry? So angry. angry. Oh, angry he was smooth. mad at me. How dare does this Terry Harden chick say no to me? Nobody says no to me. Right, but it was almost like playful mad, which was adorable. Wanted, yeah, because he because he wanted you so bad. 
Well, he cared about me as a puppeteer, and I think I, I amused him because nobody says no. And then they, they don't back it up with, with legitimate, I mean, it, 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 you've done your homework, you know? He was like, oh my gosh, this kid, this kid has been stalking me, to use your words, Kevin. <laughs> and um, he said, bring your portfolio, because he said, I want to see your work. And he said, come to the audition, and uh, if you're not good, um, you're, you know, I'm going to get you. And um, without extending your podcast to forever, at some point I'll tell you about the audition. It was quite amusing, but needless to say, not only did I get the part, but we started creating a show together. And then, unfortunately, he passed away, and the show never saw the light of day. And um, it was devastating to me when we lost him. I was actually sculpting Big Thunder Splat, I mean, uh, Splash Mountain, Tokyo, and the Imagineers really needed me at Imagineering to complete my work, and uh, I was devastated by his death. I had just talked to him the night before and made an appointment for him to come by the um, Splash Mountain model at Imagineering on his way to see, to approve the sculptures for Muppet 3D, to say hello to everybody, because I had been shooting with him, and all my and everybody loves the Muppets and everybody loves Jim. So I called him up on the phone and he answered. And I said, "Would you mind swinging, allowing some time to swing by and seeing me? I have a whole team here that's building Splash Mountain Tokyo, and they all want to meet you." And he said, "No problem. I'd be happy to do that." And I said, "You don't sound well." And he said, "I just have a little cold." And the next day he was dead. Oh my! So really rough on me. And uh, Imagineers were very sweet. My supervisor actually isolated me in another location. He said, I can't let you go home, but I can isolate you so that you can work. And if you burst into tears, not everybody, you won't have witnesses. So, so that was really sweet. But yeah, that was, that was tough, really tough. And then um, it came time to program the characters for Muppet 3D. And they brought me into the Tahunga building here at Disney has all kinds of buildings. One of the ones they do, the, they program the attractions and build the full-size sets is called the Tahunga Building. And uh, Frank came up to me, um, Jim really thought you were a talent. And I burst into tears and he said, he said, man, he said, I feel exactly the same way. So it, it was rough on all of us for quite some time to lose him so young because he was a genius and he really was a sweetheart and a bit of a stinker. All puppeteers are a bit of a stinker, so you have to kind of watch out for us. <laughs> wow, that, that's that's a touching that's a touching story. The uh, yeah, and you are, of course, as you probably know, so lucky that you got to not only meet him but work with him and uh, become friends with him. Very fortunate, and I have a picture of me standing right next to him in a big group shot from Muppet 3D Theater, and I look at it every day, and I'm so thrilled. And he autographed my um, Kermit the Frog Hallmark ornament. I didn't think to take a picture while he was autographing it, and Frank Oz autographed my Miss Piggy Hallmark ornament the time I was collecting those. Well, to uh, to back up a little bit, um, I have a question from someone in the Facebook group. Paul Tidd asks, what made you decide to get into puppeteering as a career in the first place? Well, this person who asked this question, this is a very good question. I mean, maybe you thought that, that this was something, oh, I don't know if I should ask this question, but I'm telling you it's a good question to ask. Because uh, I was, I'm, I'm now 60 years old, and I was born in 1957. Now, if you remember your studies, 1956 is when Rosa Parks was fighting for her right to sit on a bus because she was a black woman. The back half of the bus was full where black people were supposed to sit, and she needed to sit down. 
and she finally sat at the front, which she was not supposed to do, and hence her story. Well, at that time, my white mother fell in love with my black father, and they were married in the same year. And then they had me one year later, a light-skinned girl with hair that looks like it came off of a black person. So when I was growing up, I wanted to be an actress, and no one would hire me. Because in their words, back in those days, it looked like my parents had done something. I remember thinking as a kid, what does that mean? They sent away cereal box tops and got me in the mail. What does this mean? As a kid, I just didn't understand it. And my mom tried to have me audition for commercials, but they just didn't like the way I looked. She looks too mixed. Now, fast forward to today, many mixed people are revered for the exotic look that they look like. Tiger Woods or Halle Berry or myself included. People are fascinated by your look, but back then they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So I kept acting in school and then one day I met an amazing lady who introduced me to puppets. And once I was introduced to puppets, I knew I could have my art and my acting together and no one would care what I look like. So that was the catapult. What's great about it is as a puppeteer, I could build anything. I could create anything. I could perform anywhere and nobody friggin' cared what I looked like. They weren't looking at me. And that was just, you started as a puppeteer, and then that led into you um, being an Imagineer. Um, and so that's my next question is, uh, what, what was your foot in the door for Imagineering? Was it the work on Muppet Vision? No. Um, Imagineering was very interesting because as a young girl, I was first introduced to Disneyland at four years old. And then I always wanted to go once a year, and it took my dad saving up his money. He was a phone man in Hollywood, the first black phone man in Hollywood. And he would save up his pennies so that we could go once a year, just like many of you do now. It was always a park that was cost, high cost. It was an investment. But it was well worth it. There was nothing like Disneyland in the world, and it was my favorite place on earth. So my dad started to take me there every year. And when I was about 10 or 12, as many of you who are parents, you kind of let your kids go run around the park and you kind of do your thing, they do their thing. Maybe you meet for lunch see a show and then off they go again and then you meet for fireworks. That's kind of what my parents did. And that's the beauty of what Walt created. And I would automatically go to the Jungle Cruise. And I would sit on the Jungle Cruise and I would get in line and I would ride the Jungle Cruise and I would get in line and I would ride the Jungle Cruise and I would get in line and I would ride the Jungle Cruise. <laughs> that was pretty much my entire day was riding the Jungle Cruise because I loved the figures on the ride, and I love that they shot the hippos, which breaks my heart, they can't shoot anymore, but I digress. That, But all of this, I would just watch in fascination. And at one point, it's me on the boat and the cast member. And the cast member looks down and he said, what, why are you here so many times? What is with you? You know, he says, <laughs> I gotta ask you, because you've been riding this ride since eight o'clock this morning. I finally get the chance to ask you because there's nobody and I said I just love these figures they're so amazing and he said they're sculpted by someone did you know that there's someone who made these and I said Walt Disney he said no no Walt Disney put the people together 
but Walt Disney has a company called Imagineering. At the time, it was um, WED, and WED has amazing people it brings together, and one of them is Blaine Gibson, and he's the sculptor of these figures. And I wrote it down, and I said, oh my gosh, there's a person who does this? And he said, there certainly is. So I ran home, and I started combing through newspapers. I watched Wonderful World of Disney every week, trying to get a glimpse and to further understand Blaine Gibson. He's been my mentor and my hero for years, even though he didn't know it. And I made a vow that I was going to do what he did. And so through the years, I did movie sculpting, and I would apply to Disney, and Disney would reject me. And then I would apply to Disney again, and Disney would reject me. In fact, so many rejection letters, I could wallpaper my entire 1,500-square-foot house with every rejection and that friggin' mouse that I came to hate. Um, every time I got a letter, I would say, rah, rah, rah. <laughs> and uh, so one so one day I'm like, because um, I got hired in 87, but one day around 1980, I think early 87, I decided the, that year in 87, I decided to just let it go for a little bit. Sometimes you have to put your dream on the side and do something else so you can regroup and attack it. Doesn't mean you're giving up. It just means, okay, the troops are retreating for a little while. We're going to figure out how to attack this wall. We're going to get over this wall. And, um, and I was working for a little company called Shafton Inc. And they made Charlie Tunas and they made McGruff the Crime Dog and they made... Uh, 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 the Smokey the Bear, and I was sculpting heads in this place for these walk-around characters that, no Disney walk-around characters, but all of Universal characters, all of SeaWorld characters, all of other park characters, this company builds, and I was the sculptor for them. And one day, a friend of mine walks in, and he, he sees me in the back, and he says, Terry, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm waiting to apply to Disney again. I'm just, you know, working here. This is my little uh, oasis as I regroup and figure out what I'm going to do. And he goes, well, I work for Disney now. And I said, what do you do? He says, I paint sets. And I said, oh, my goodness, that's awesome. And he said, I'll tell you what, give me your information. I'll put, I'll put a word in for you. They need people. And sure enough, the next day I was called and they wanted to interview me. And I went in to the Tahunga building and met with a man named Matt, Matthew Pretty, and he looked through my portfolio, and all the time he flipped through the pages, because back then we didn't have iPads, guys. Um, he flipped <laughs> through a big, giant portfolio full of photographs, and every time he did, he said, oh, my God. Oh, oh, my, oh, my, holy. And then he looked up with big, round eyes and said, where have you been keeping yourself? <laughs> and I said, stupid me. I kept knocking at the front door when I should have come in the back. <laughs> and uh, he smiled, and it took a long time for them to hire me. It took three months, and the whole time I'm trying not to take, I need to take work, but I'm trying not to take work because I can tell. I went through nine, eight interviews. I knew they liked me. I knew they liked what I did, but it just took them forever to hire me, and I kept trying to be available because I didn't want to take a job only to find out, Derry, we want you to come in because whatever job that was, I was going to leave it and I didn't want to do that to anybody. So all of a sudden I get a call, this is a true story, I get a call from Dolly Parton 
uh, not Dolly Parton herself, but her company. And they say for two weeks over the Christmas holidays, well, for Christmas holidays, where Dolly Parton is doing a Christmas special with Burl Ives and Mac Davis, and we want you to be one of the puppeteers. And I was like, done. And then I get a call from Disney. I'm in rehearsals with Dolly. And then I'm in, I get a call from Disney. And Disney says, we want you to do your ninth interview. And it's smack dab in the middle of my shooting Dolly Parton. And I tell them I can't do it. I say, sorry, guys. You've seen me eight times. I can't do the ninth. I'm working with Dolly Parton. And they say, then you're out of the running. Oh. We're sorry. We can't use you. And I explode on the phone. Oh, my Lord. I did not use swear words because I don't swear much unless for emphasis. And But I blasted them. I told them I knew they were Disney people because they were living in fantasy land. <laughs> and so they, the guy on the other end, must have his hair must have been permanently blown away from the phone because I was furious at them. How dare you treat people like this? How dare dare you do this? I don't know if you're smoking crack or what your problem is, but I don't need you people. You people are ridiculous. You're idiots. And I hung up. Three days later, they sent me a contract. <laughs> and I said to them, I said, if I knew getting mad would get you guys off your rumps, I would have done it weeks ago. Jeez. That's crazy. That's absolutely insane. How does, Isn't that nuts? That's, that's, a, that's super weird. That, Isn't that funny? You've done that multiple times in your career, apparently. Well, that, uh, I, don't, I try not to explode because I want to give them all the opportunity in the world, but I have trouble when, you know, I'm going in eight times, I'm showing my portfolio, everyone likes me, and you're going to have me come in for a, to a ninth. Now you're just wanting your butt kissed, in my opinion, and I just <laughs> let them know that that's what I thought. And maybe that wasn't the best, but I did get hired, and I was put in the model shop under Rockwork. I was to sculpt Big Thunder Rockwork and Dragon's Lair Rockwork and all the wonderful cool things and many sculptors told me it was going to be a boring job and I said have you ever done rock work and they said no I said then shut up <laughs> it's a great it's a great opportunity for me I'm very excited to be an Imagineer uh, uh, it was a joyful experience I've been an Imagineer since then however I was there under the employee for 12 10 to 12 years I had a break in the middle and then I came back and then I was there for like, I think 12 years. And now I'm a contractor. They like to bring people, as I mentioned before, in as contractors. So they'll call me up and say, Terry, you have enough, you know, do you have so many weeks to give to Shanghai? And I have the right to say yes or no. I have my own company, so I like it this way. I would not go back as an employee. I, I would stay, I would stay as a contractor. A, I get paid more and B, I, I can work my own hours. I can pretty much say I'm free for a week. I'm free for two weeks, I'm free for a month, this is what I can give you, and then Disney decides whether or not they want to take me. And they don't always. So, um, but it, it gives me opportunities, like, you know. So I'm torn now because I could go call, give them a call and say, do you need some help on Star Wars land? And just to be able to say I put a tool to something for Star Wars land. But the problem is, is I really enjoy rolling out of bed in my pajamas and sculpting in my studio out back. So I'm torn with that, you know, because I do a lot of stuff on my own and my company is very well known or pretty well known, hopefully getting more known as we speak here. And so it's, it, I'm torn, which people find that very surprising, but, 
but I'm very happy um, being an Imagineer and, and talking to people like you and being at home with my family. So, um, you know, if, if something comes up and they call me and they're really against it and they want a couple of days, I'll run in and help them out. But I don't want to tell them that I'm available for weeks and months because I, I'm not much of an employee mindset anymore. I'm more of an independent mindset now. Um, what was your favorite Disney attraction to work on? Dragon's Lair, Paris. I had to fight for it. I had to pitch for it. And Disney doesn't let women sculpt it by themselves most of the time in that. Because a lot of times the women are put in um, are put in the drawing, design, painting, like you have your people like, um, and it's not to say this is a bad thing. It's just the way Disney kind of works. But um, you have a lot of the women are painters and they do the design concepts and then they go out and they talk about the fabrics and how it's supposed to look um, and things like this. Or you have... Um, people that paint the murals and put them together or they make the costumes and all of this sort of stuff. To have a woman in the field slinging lath and plaster is very unusual, but I was perfectly capable of doing this because I worked in the film industry first and that's what I did. I was also capable of moving a cherry picker and carving things 40 feet tall because that's what I did in the movie industry. So when I was brought into Imagineering, I thought that they would take me from the model sculpting to the field because that's what I do, and they didn't want to do that. So because they just wanted the men to go over there, and it's not because they're chauvinistic, it's because um, with Paris, it was going into France, and France's attitude about women is different from the U.S., so... They wanted the shortest distance between two points. So for me, I was able to design the entire Dragon's Lair ride, but then I ended up having to teach it to a man who was going over there. And they were kind enough to give me a man who really loved my work, who really edified me and promised me they were going to do exactly what my model said and not divert from it. And that's the kind of person that I wanted when I did, um, when I did Dragon's Lair. A good Michael Eisner story for you. We at Imagineering were not fans. So before you get into this, I've had multiple people that comment, multiple people that uh, that talk to me because I make jokes about him. And I was kind of worried bringing you on because if you watch the videos, I do not treat him as the god of theme parks. I treat him as almost the, uh, he started out as someone that was like salvaged it. And then he turned into, you know, the, the I use the old Dark Knight quote, you either die a villain or live long enough to see yourself make poor financial decisions that force you into closing <laughs> down people's favorite rides. Um, so that's kind of what Michael Eisner's looked at as far as Defunct Land goes. So I really want to hear uh, your perspective on the reign of Eisner in that 20 year period. The reign of I Now, Eisner is a guy, he was kind, he was a sweet Whenever I meet him at family gatherings and things like this, he was always very kind and friendly and actually funny. But as a as the CEO of Disney, he was he was terrible. And one of the reasons we felt and and I'm saying this from the imagineering point side, he was terrible. And the reason was because he wanted to create the Hollywood pictures to do more movies that were not G-rated for Disney. He wanted to have that adult section of movies, and in order to do it, he kept taking money from the amusement parks, the parks we were doing, because the parks were successful. So for Big Thunder Mountain Paris, we had a certain budget, and the next day, 
our supervisor, who was our show producer that was overseeing working with us in the in the creation of Big Thunder Mountain, which is the best mountain in Paris, because you go, uh, you mount it on the mainland, go under the water, and come up on an island. Yeah, it's it's out on the it's an island. You can't even get out. It's to the... awesome. It's really <laughs> cool. Not just because I sculpted it, but it's because it is really amazing. And uh, <laughs> and we were working on this, and we had this. It's not that it's not a beautiful ride now, but we had this incredible ride because the guy and I, who didn't get along in the beginning, but I, but we fixed that. I won't go into that. But the point is, is we were working together to create the experience. He finally saw that what an Imagineer means is to create the ultimate experience for the guest. So he came up with this amazing idea. Um, Paris was going to have the canoes. And the canoes were going to be were going to canoe around Big Thunder, so we came up with this idea of creating a sand cave within the island mountain. Now there's the arch, which was mine. I did the arch, and there's nothing like going there and standing in front of a giant arch that you sculpted at one tenth scale or whatever I was doing it at. I mean, it was just amazing to see every line that I put in my sculpture. Um, immortalized for all time in Paris. It's, it's, it makes you, it just, it's just, uh, it's a blessing is what it is. So he creates the sand cave and here was the scenario the two of us came up with. You're on the canoe and you're rowing and you're rowing and you're rowing. Okay. To the left. Okay. To the right. And then all of a sudden the cast member leading you says, what's that? And you know, you're a guest. You're like, what do you mean? What's that? What's that up there? Oh my goodness. That wasn't there before. And he points to a small opening inside the mountain on the island. And he says, any of you up for exploring? People said, no. People say, yes. Whatever they say. He goes, let's go explore. So you go in and you feel like you have to hunker down because it's a small opening, but you're rowing inside this small opening, and then it opens up into this cathedral of colors reflecting on the inner sculptings that the water has done inside the sand cave. And it was magnificent. It was stunning. Wow. And it was what every Disney enthusiast loves. It was a secret. <laughs> so we were so excited, all of us. This is going to drive them wild. And then Michael Eisner took away a million dollars of our budget and we had to get rid of the arch or the cave. And I did not want to get rid of the cave. He did not want to get rid of the arch. And we argued. And then one day I came in at seven. He had come in at six and carved the cave away because he said, I want the arch to stay. And it broke my heart. Yes, this is the best big thunder of all the big thunders because you you board on the mainland and you go up on on an island but oh if we had just been able to do that cave it would have been so wonderful for every cast member they would have and it would have preserved the canoe rides which can be boring right for some so i thought oh i'm so proud but bless michael this is what was happening to us in paris often so I'm called in by, I forget how we get the call. Oh, Brian calls me. He says, Terry, we're going to do the 20th anniversary of Walt Disney World as Baby Sinclair. Because I was team baby on dinosaurs. I was the arms. 
And, uh, and Brian says, I'm going to do the puppet and you're going to do the arms. And I said, okay. And he said, no shenanigans with you, young lady. And I was like, why? And he said, cause baby gets to clunk Michael Eisner on the head with the baby puddle. And I went, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we go down to the Disney studios. We're going to shoot this opening and for the 20th anniversary, you might be able to Google it and find it. And and uh, Baby Sinclair is to sit at Michael Eisner's desk, and Michael Eisner says, "Baby Sinclair, what are you doing in my chat in my chair?" And Baby Sinclair says, "Number one, number two. And Michael says, "What?" And so uh, Baby always has his bottle. So we had all of these producers of Disney showing us these soft bottles I could clunk him in the head with, since I'm the arms, and. Uh, and Brian said, no. He says, no, baby has a very distinct looking bottle. It has a little critter in it that he sips up. Brian into Henson? It. Yeah, Brian Henson. Says, he, it, it, he, we can't use another bottle. It will look wrong. And they said, well, then she can't hit him very hard. And Brian says, Terry, you can't hit him very hard. And I don't <laughs> say anything. Oh, no. Terry? Oh, all right. <laughs> okay, so we get in position for Mike because the baby's going to hit Michael in the head and go, wise up. So we're sitting there. I, I take the bottle and I clunk him in the head somewhat gently. And then I get a gift from God. Michael leans behind and face to face he looks at me and he says, Terry, I'm not that good of an actor. You've got to really hit me. And I go... Are you sure? <laughs> yes. Okay. And Brian goes, oh, no. And so when baby does it, he winds up, and I go, bam. And it goes, crack. And, and Michael Eisner falls back. He's sitting, and he's holding his head, and they cut. And the Foley artist, or the, the man in the, in the, t- the booth, goes, crack. We won't need to fully that because you could hear the crack. And I had said for all my friends at Imagineering, bip, you know. That's <laughs> and, he, so and then great. Michael came back holding his head saying, that'll work, you know. <laughs> that, that is so awesome. Yeah. So that's... now you have your, your Michael Eisner story. Thank Wherever you so he is, much. he's going to go, oh my gosh, that kid. I remember that kid. You know? Yeah, no kidding. That's uh, that's funny. I mean, I love these uh, the behind the scenes of some of these uh, promos and videos in Wonderful World of Disney and what have you that he shot. I, I don't know if you, uh, I'm sure you have, um, you know, the uh, back in when he did the Walt, Walt, Muppets at Walt Disney World movie. Um, that, yeah. that, that TV movie. Um, I, did, I don't know. Did you work on that? No, I didn't get to work on that one. That, uh, and th- they have the scene where, uh, Fozzie Bear and Fozzie's mom, a character that for some reason became popular and then never was seen again. Yeah. Um, was, uh, talking to Michael Eisner at, I think it was the Grand Floridian. And, um, yes. th- there's a blooper reel online where he just keeps messing up over it and he just gets so frustrated and like, and then Fozzie just says, can we get another actor in here? Yes, exactly. And that's the thing about the puppets because the puppets are going, they, they just come up with these incredible antics that we're, we're, I can't stress enough that we're stinkers on the show. Dinosaurs, quick story on the show. Dinosaurs, the TV show, 
uh, Fran and Earl would go out to eat, and there was a, anytime people ate, there was a critter on the plate. So in order to keep the little puppet critter, and then someone would be under the floor puppeteering the critter before they got eaten. And so there was this little critter on the plate. And so what had to happen is a, is a, a technician had to come in and staple the feet of the puppet to the, the plate so that he wouldn't appear to float. And I can't tell you, Kevin, how many times puppeteers would sneak up, get in the puppet, the guy would, would staple the foot, and the puppet would go, ow, 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 what are you doing? No, no. And then they'd grab the other one, and they'd go, no, 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 ah, no, 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 stop, stop. And the first, in the beginning, the technicians would just freak out. But afterwards, they just ignore us. They go, oh, gosh, here go again. You know, That's these crazy hilarious. people. We were insane. We were just nutty. So that's one of the things that when you see these behind the scenes, yes, that's why for Michael Eisner, he, he always said he loved the puppets. I think it was under duress, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we, we got him on that. And it was the 20th anniversary of Walt Disney World TV specials. So if you get to see that, you can know the behind the scenes. I really, I really clocked him and, and I told everybody to watch because um, I had a gift for them and uh, it was really funny. So, that's... so. That's fantastic, yeah. and so you're, and so yeah. Disney Disney yeah. Paris was a huge uh, project for you to work on, and then um, so that, and you've done a lot of other things. Uh, can you just real quick list off some of the other attractions you've worked on? I mentioned a few of them earlier, just to wrap up this uh, career standpoint for you. Well, I started out in uh, I was brought on to do Big Thunder, and then I was brought on to do, and then after that, I said I want to pick my next one. I want to do Dragon's Lair. Dragon's Lair was originally just going to be a sculpture. It wasn't supposed to move. So I had to go before Tony Baxter, who I had no idea who he was. Yes, it's true. I had no idea who Tony Baxter was. And I... The Baxter. The Baxter. And I asked if I... I said, let's go see him. And they said, you can't just go see him. You have to make an appointment. I said, let's make an appointment then. And they said, look, he's senior VP. I said, I don't care who he is. If he's the one that's going to help me to animate the dragon, get him over here. And they said, uh, you don't just get him over here. We're going to ask him if he will come over. And I kept saying, fine, whatever you need to do. And they said, Terry, you talk so long, which, Kevin, you've just experienced. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so they said, you're going to have to keep it to 20 minutes. And I said, fine. And, I, and so they made an appointment with Tony. Tony agreed to came over. I'm sure my supervisor said, I've got this wild and crazy, extremely passionate, goofy girl who believes the dragon should be animated and she wants to state her case. Do you have 20 minutes? And Tony said, yes. He came with his entourage, someone to give him a chair, which he sat in, someone to make sure he had plenty of water, someone to make sure he was cool and comfortable. I was in my lab coat that I had illustrated. I illustrate anything that's white. I don't wear much things that are just white. So if they're just white, it's because I've shown extreme discipline. Otherwise, I'm drawn all over them. And I, was, <laughs> I had my, um, my coat and it had a dragon on the, on the chest. And, uh, and I looked at Tony and Tony looked up at me and I was in a runner position, much like a runner that's going to start off for a sprint or a Disney race. And, uh, I was rocking back and forth from right foot to left foot, looking at him as though I was in the gate, like a, like an excited racehorse. <laughs> and I said, you're Tony Baxter. He said, you're Terry Harden. I said, yes. He said, yes. I said, say go. And he says, excuse me, what? And I said, say go. And he says, what are you talking about? And I said, say go. And he says, go. And I talked at a mile a minute. So this is the dragon. This is what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking the head can be here and then the head can go up. And then I'm thinking that the paw can do this and the tail can do this based on the cat, based on the dog, da, 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 da. And he says, wait, 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 
take a breath. And I'm like, dude, I only have 20 minutes. We've gone three. I have 18. You're cramping my style. Let's go. <laughs> and he says, he says, listen, if I give you more time, will you slow down and explain to me your idea? And I said, of course I will. So I walked him through all my concepts and my ideas about Dragon's Lair. And he said, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it the green light on one condition. And I said, what's that? And he said, you be the builder. You design it. Wow. And I went, Ugh. Okay. I mean, I'd never designed an entire ride before. It was the greatest experience, one of the greatest experiences of my life. I've had several, but this one was phenomenal. This was, you know, for Tony to smile down at me and say, you get to do it, kid. I have a couple things I want you to incorporate, but it's yours. Make it happen. And I did. So, wow. So yeah, it's mine. And I didn't get to see it till 2000 because I was never flown over by Disney over to France, but I went on my own. And um, Matt um, McKim was one of the major people that was men over there that was making it reality. And I cried because there were things I knew about in that ride that maybe others didn't. And Matt made sure they got in the actual attraction. So I get choked up every time I go in and, and see it. And Paris just refurbished her before last year, and I went to see her last year and gave a tour discussing my thoughts and telling this story I just relayed to you all. And um, and it was uh, it was just great to see it. I was surprised at how many people don't know there's a dragon underneath the castle at Disney Paris, but hello, that's why it's the best castle. It is the best castle in the world of all the Disney parks because why? It has a dragon underneath. So go see why it's the greatest castle so that you understand that because many people love their own castle but you don't have a dragon underneath so you know Paris plays their trump card on the dragon and, and that's what happened so that was such a joyful thing to have I've worked with Jim Henson I've worked with over 125 celebrities I've written every name down and these are people that have mentored me and talked to me and and shared their lives with me one of them being Michael Jackson and we are going to pick back up on Michael Jackson and Captain EO next week. If you haven't already, go to the link in the description to pick up your Captain EO 4D for $5 pack. So you can watch next week's Defunct Land History episode in 3D. Although there will also be a 2D version if you don't get the 3D glasses in time. Terry and I will be back next week for part 2 of our discussion. But for now, don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for visiting Defunct Land.